So in Circle of Hope's uh, history, most of what we said on LGBTQIA inclusion comes is in our marriage and the new creation teaching, which we've updated several times and it's probably at its final iteration right now until we make something else altogether. Circle of Hope has largely leaned on listening to our people and discerning our mission field in our movement to become an LGBTQIA-affirming church. That's how we've done it. We listened to the queer people among us, and we imagined who was next among us, and that informed our affirmation. We did look to the Bible, and we found places where Paul was overcoming these barriers that divide us and uniting everybody together in common. Similar themes in the gospel. But, our doing, but, but specifically our time tonight is discussing why the Bible, especially in parts that seem to be condemning towards LGBTQIA people, why, why doesn't that move us to not be affirming? There seem to be a lot of passages in the Bible that contradict LGBT affirmation. We haven't explored those much in circles, so this is a new opportunity for us. So we want to explore their context and their meaning. None of these passages have deterred our affirmation. But you've wondered why and people have wondered why. So tonight we're going to look at seven passages that have historically been used to oppress LGBTQIA people. From the outset, I want to say that when we read the Bible, we rarely find an ethic that translates literally to our time and place. We're always doing interpretation. We do interpretation to, to, to discern our ethics today. Our sexual ethics are not literally taken from the Bible, but interpreted from the text. And we interpret the text to be disciples of Jesus, to be Jesus followers, and we do that as a group. So that's what tonight's about. I'll offer the texts, we'll read them together, and we'll go through each one, and after each time we'll have talk back. You'll get to respond with your thoughts and your feelings about what I said and, 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 and what you think too. And because there's so many of us and there's more on Zoom, we just want to create as much space as we can to talk. So we, I hope it's mainly talking with one another tonight, even though there is a significant amount of material to go through as well. Um, we want to encourage good faith discussion. So if you came here to change someone's mind, if you came here to uh, contradict our teaching on LGBT affirmation, you know, that isn't engaging in good faith. We want to learn together. We want to grow together. But we're not questioning our affirming position that we've already discerned. This is a time about why these passages don't counter affirmation. And when we discuss it, when we ask questions, it's okay to ask questions and wonder and, and even um, disagree. But when we do so, remember that these aren't just purely intellectual or ideological matters. 
People's dignity and livelihood is on the line. So we want to take care of each other. We want to take care of the most vulnerable tonight. This time is largely oriented around the Bible. And in order, it's, it's so, so it's talking about why the Bible doesn't condemn LGBTQIA people. But it isn't, we're not, re, we're not yet, in this time anyway, working on a, uh, like a queer liberation theology, which would be important for our church to work on, okay? That's, a, that's, that's something that we should take um, a significant amount of time to do in listening especially to our LGBTQIA people about how we can empower and celebrate and affirm them. This is strictly a, a biblical discussion that, that, that connects to LGBTQIA people, but this isn't how we conclude to be affirming. There's a lot more work to be done with that. Does that make sense? So that's a limited scope. So I want to give you the warning I gave many of you already. The material tonight's graphic. It involves things like sexual assault. And it's essential that we get into those details to understand what the Bible is really saying. So if that harms you, I understand if you need to leave. Or take some space. You can, you can, you can walk about the building if you need to. Does that make sense? So I just want to give you a significant content warning about that. Do you have any questions so far? On Zoom, raise your hand if you have a question. Brian will unmute you and we can hear you or you can type in the question and someone will be able to utter it out loud. Allison's here for the people in person. If you have a question or a comment, be sure you collect the microphone and use it before you speak so that we can hear you, yes, but also so that the people on Zoom can hear you. That make sense? Any, so any, any questions or comments so far about the scope of the night? Okay. Shall we get going? Go to the first slide, Bryant, or, get, or pull up the slide so sure I can move it. Okay, the first passage we're going to talk about, we're going to start from the beginning of the Bible and go to the end. Genesis 9. Who wants to read this out loud? Raise your hand if you want to read it. On Zoom, can, can, they can see it on Zoom too, right, Bryant? Okay, so on Zoom too, you could read it out loud. Just raise your hand and we'll unmute you. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. So, some people conclude that this passage condemns LGBTQIA people. Let's talk about it. Some people think that Ham's sin here was having sex with Noah. And they think that the curse on Canaan was so extreme because of how egregious 
gay sex is, essentially. That's, the, that's, that's, that's where the piece is. Now, let's piece this together. I know some of you are looking confusing because the text is not uh, straightforward in that regard. The text is not clear as to what happened. But we think Noah became intoxicated, undressed himself, and then Ham had sex with him. Ham saw the nakedness of his father. You see that up here? Saw the nakedness of his father. Which some people understand as implying that they had sex. But we know it wasn't a consensual act. Because Noah was drunk. And he came to know what his youngest son had done to him. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said. So something happened to Noah in that moment that he came to understand after he was, he was passed out. Something happened and then he understood it. So in that conclusion, in that idea, if they did have sex, then we conclude that um, Ham raped Noah. And that is an act that is designed, that, that, is, that, that is to humiliate and subordinate someone. His youngest son, in doing that, became the master of the relationship through the act. Not only was it rape, it was incestuous rape. And so, if that's what's happening in the text, it's very hard to conclude that this is a condemnation of consensual sex between men. Because the nature of this encounter is significantly different to what we would describe as normative, healthy relationships. The issue here is not Ham's gender or Noah's gender. It's the sexual assault. But still, again, on top of this, We did interpretation to see how you could conclude this was opposing LGBT people. And even if there was a sexual encounter, why that wouldn't. But we still, it's not that clear that this act occurred, that rape occurred here. The sin here could have been, because we know there was a sin because there's a curse on Canaan right after that he utters. Something bad happened. So the sin could have been that he... That he, didn't, uh, that, that he simply saw his father naked, which is a purity law violation. Or he didn't help his parent when he was in distress, another significant violation. So those are po other possibilities. So in both cases, if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's rape, we don't conclude that consensual sex between men is wrong because it's a different kind of act that we're talking about. And if we don't conclude that sex happened at all, there's other reasoning for this. So to take Genesis 9 and conclude in, in against LGBTQIA affirmation, to me, doesn't uh, hold a lot of water based on how we're understanding this passage. Okay. So that's where we land here. I'm arguing that this was either rape, so it was, it was about sexual assault, or sex didn't actually happen. I actually think, the first, my, in my viewpoint, the first one is the most likely scenario. Okay?
Shall we keep going? All right. Next passage. These are two passages we have here. We have Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Okay? Can you all handle some more Bible reading? The passages eventually get a little bit shorter, but that's just not what they are right now. Someone read Genesis 19. We're going to read Judges 19 first, and then we're going to read Genesis 19. These passages interpret one another. Any volunteers to do that? If you get caught up in the names, just do your best. You don't have to say them right. Okay? They turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. He went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took them to spend the night. Then at evening there was an old man coming from his work in the field. The man was from the hill country, from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was residing in Gibeah. The people of the place were Benjaminites. When, when the old man looked up and saw the wayfarer in the open square of the city, he said, where are you going and where do you come from? He answered him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to my home. Nobody has offered to take me in. We, your servants, have straw and fodder for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and the woman and the young man along with us. We need nothing more. The old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city, a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them. But against this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and put her out to them. They wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. We're going to take that passage, and then we're going to read Genesis 19 after it. I know these are brutal passages. Um, we'll, we'll get through it. Genesis 19. Anybody? The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night. Oh, no. Maybe the battery is dying. Hmm. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And, but they replied, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now he will deal worse with you than with them. 
Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Genesis 19 is often used to, again, say that LGBT relations are sinful. The reason we want to read it with Judges 19 is because the accounts are so similar and the sin at hand is so similar between them that it teaches us that the gender of the people who were, uh, the gender of the people who were raped or attempted to be raped is not where the sin is. It's in, it, it, it is in the act itself. It's in the assault itself. The sin of Sodom, which we'll get to later, is seen as um, the idea of having sex with another man, gay sex, in Genesis 19. But when we read it along Judges 19, a very similar story, and arguably drawing from the same sources in Judges 19, we can see that the issue is, once again, sexual assault and rape, and not consensual sex between men. In Genesis 19... The townsmen are trying to rape two males. And in Judges 19, it's a woman who's raped. If you read them together, it helps us understand that in both situations, the issue is rape or attempted rape. Like Ham, the purpose here is to showcase sexual violence for the purpose of humiliating somebody. And further, in this case, the hospitality of the host is severely violated. And so the honor code is broken. Sexuality, sexual preference, these sort of matters are essentially irrelevant in these passages. Furthermore, in other parts of the Old Testament, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, as it were, is not listed as quote-unquote homosexuality, but rather a neglect of the poor and the needy. This is what the sin of Sodom is. And you can see that, let's get to the next three from the prophets here. There's three instances where you can see what the sin of Sodom is. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few visitors, we would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove all the evil things you're doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the orphan, defend the, defend, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And then in Jeremiah, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen one, a, a more shocking thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from wickedness. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And then finally from Ezekiel, this is the most explicit. As I live, says the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her sisters have not done as you and your daughters have done. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor or the need, and the needy. They were haughty, and they did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. In the Old Testament, when they're reflecting on the sins of Sodom, has nothing to do with sex or with... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say gay sex, but um, sex between LGBTQIA people. We're dealing with a whole different set of issues. 
All these passages are describing the sins of Sodom, but they don't connect their sins to sexuality or to orientation. Some of them are opaque. Jeremiah and Isaiah aren't very explicit. But Ezekiel is so explicit that we get the idea that the bigger sins here are neglecting the poor and the needy. That sort of excess is what we're talking about. And it was only in the first century, the first century that sexuality was connected to Sodom, and even then done by some of the early fathers. It's a late interpretation. And in my opinion, it is not immediately textually evident from these encounters. So to take these encounters that describe sexual assault as the sin, and then conclude that today, uh, consensual sex between men in a loving relationship is wrong, seems to be also a stretch and not the appropriate application of what the, what the text is. Even if we're trying to extract a principle from it, which is a bigger discussion about how to use the Bible in general, even if you were using it that way, I think that it's hard to do this. What do you think of that? Anything you want to say back to that? So these passages come from the Levitical law, and before we proceed to them, I want to comment on how generally Christians approach the law and the Bible. The Apostle Paul writes a strong polemic against the law when he offers his epistles, particularly in Galatians and in Romans. The law of Christ, the law of love, supersedes all of the old law. Jesus summarizes the law as loving God and loving others when he is asked. So there's a distinct legal difference in legal understanding in the New Testament that largely lead us to understand the old law as not applying to us in the same way. Even if it's significant to Jewish people. So we're Christians approaching this. That's one thing we just need to hold. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Gentiles are not required to follow the Jewish law. Now this is just a New Testament point in general. The Jewish people are still following the Jewish law in the New Testament. Still following all of it, still getting circumcised, the whole thing. Gentiles aren't, don't have to though. So Jewish people still observed the, the, the law and Gentiles didn't. That was the radical thing. No one is making Jewish people act in Gentile ways. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. But there was an exception in the, Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem Council. What are the laws that they needed to follow? They needed to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. They needed to abstain from food that had blood in it. From, uh, also, f uh, meat from the... Fr if, if the animal was strangled, they couldn't eat that meat either. And also from sexual immorality. For the most part... The only thing here that long-term applies to Christians is sexual immorality. Although I know Christians that won't eat blood sausage because of this passage. Familiar with blood sausage, European blood sausage. And I, and, I, I don't, and I don't know many that like question their butcher about how the animal was slaughtered before purchasing the animal. Right? Generally, we're not doing that, I would say. And even, and, but, but this term sexual immorality is one that could still apply to us. So I want to be respectful of that. But we don't draw sexual ethics from the Old Testament. Strictly speaking, literally. Why? 
For one reason, the Old Testament uh, condones polygamy and concubinage, for example. And generally speaking, we're not drawing on those today. And even has laws that say, you know, if a man... It is wrong for a man to love one of his wives and not the other, for example. In general, we don't have this an appreciation for a hierarchical situation where a man has many different wives are not related, right? Related to one another. That, is, that isn't to speak to other sexual expression that we won't get, to, get into today, but that kind of power relationship that is often contained in polygamous relationships um, isn't something that we think of as normative now, and we don't generally draw on it to define our ethics today. Even if we conclude, and I'm not totally going there tonight, if something like uh, polyamory is okay, we're not drawing it from the concubinage and polygamy in the Old Testament to make that conclusion, at least in my understanding. We can discuss this further later, but I want to name that we're not drawing sexual ethics from the Old Testament. However, the question for us today is, is what, is what they're saying in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, does that fall into the category of sexual immorality? as described in Acts 15. Acts 15 says here the rules that you still need to follow, including the ones about sexual immorality. Do these passages fall into the exception that the Gentiles need to follow in Acts 15? That's the question we need to answer. Does that make sense as a basic premise? In general, it's, it's, it's difficult to do this, and it's not advisable, in my opinion, to categorize the Jewish law even though some commentators do, between like ritual or moral or purity or ceremonial law, because the Jewish people see them all as laws that are important to follow. So categorizing them according to arbitrary distinctions that Christians make doesn't seem appropriate. So it's all law. They're all moral laws. So for Christians, it is helpful to consider their context more than their category. In chapter 18, there's a prohibition of sex between men followed by a prohibition of having sex with a following... Uh, and, and following this, there's a prohibition of having a man having sex with a woman who is menstruating. In general, we don't pay that much mind today in any knowable or public way anyway. Even if you have varying preferences at home, when you like to have sex and when you don't and it's related somehow to the menstrual cycle, no one knows that you do that, generally. So, like, it's not a public discussion, you know. We could know if you wanted to talk about it, but we don't scrutinize it, right? That's not how we approach this. Am I right about that? But we, we pay a lot of attention to the prohibitions that follow. So why, on one hand, when they're talking about not having sex with a woman who's menstruating, we ignore it, and on the other hand, when they talk about having sex between men, we focus on it? Why would we make that distinction? Any ideas? Rachel said, because the patriarchy. What else? Any other ideas why we would pick one and not the other? Because we bring a prejudice to the text, a modern prejudice to the text. We're bringing something to the Bible. What informs these ideas in general is that the purpose of sex is reproduction and it can't be violated. Furthermore, the acts themselves 
are condemned because they degrade men and the order of society. They care about procreation and they care about violation of the order, dishonoring the order. One commentator said, if it didn't involve penetration, if it didn't humiliate a man, either a slave, a prisoner of war, or a youth, and it did not ultimately affect procreation. Those are the things that would be specifically condemned. It's noteworthy that men are prohibited from having sex with men or animals, and women are only prohibited in this passage to have sex with animals. And that implies something about the patriarchal ordering of our society, like Rachel's saying. Men sleeping with men is unnatural in the same way that a woman giving herself to an animal is unnatural. It violates the patriarchal order and is not focused specifically on sexuality. Otherwise, it might include a prohibition of women having sex with women. When men have sex with men, one of them is playing the part of a woman. And that disrupts the order. And animals can't play the part of men if women are giving themselves to them. So this is about violating that order. In the New Testament, and certainly in our church, we undo these patriarchal norms because we don't have gendered roles for men and women and non-binary folks. And any gender assignment, even in the New Testament, is something that we name as cultural or irrelevant to us. We've concluded that we're not gonna have gendered roles in our marriages, in our community, in who, can, who has gifts, who can speak, all these things. So that's the New Testament ethic that undoes this patriarchal ethic that concludes this, okay? These, and, and, and so that's one thing. These are specific acts that don't seem to apply in our context if you're committed to um, gender equality, equity among gender. Because this maintains an order that we would eventually say Jesus disrupts. And even then, it doesn't appear to be talking about what we understand as consensual relationships between, between men, between women, and between non-binary people. And, and, and if you look at the passage here, it says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, for by all these practices the nations I am casting out before you have defiled themselves. This is a, these, these are cultic laws. These are prohibitions named as what other nations do. And they're more about acting like a nation, don't act like the nations God has cast out. They're more about not acting like nations that God has cast out and not sexuality. So if you see them as actions of pagans or foreigners, it seems to me that the ruling in Acts 15 also applies to these cultic laws. Because in Acts 15, the entire point is not to allow, to, to welcome in these nations into the body without changing their culture. Does that make sense? So if you see these as a prohibition because it came from another place, the New Testament once again undoes that in Acts 15 when there's 
inclusion of all kinds of nations. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions or comments about that? What do you have to say back? Uh, maybe I was too much on Leviticus, but who knows? What do you want to say? How's this drive with you? What do you think? Do you have any questions? All right, let's go. Let's, let's keep going, shall we? Let's do Romans 1, 20 through 28. So, even if you dismiss the Old Testament as not applying to sexual relationships now, some people will say, this passage, this passage is where I have to draw the line. So let's, let's, see, let's, see, let's see if we can think about it together. Who wants to read Romans 1, 20 through 28 out loud? Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, gave, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-legged animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. In this passage, Paul is describing God as giving people up to their degrading passions after they worship another God and commit idolatry. The sin here is worshiping another God and committing idolatry. That's the main thing that happened. This passage is about fidelity to God and not self-indulgence. Paul is probably describing, like the writer of the Old Testament, cultic behavior. So it may not even apply to our modern debate. Some commentators even think Paul's talking about excess sexual expression, which is the same sex uh, symbolized here by Paul. He gave them over to their behavior, and that behavior was culturally disarming. It messed with the culture. Male passivity, female dominance, both undoing the patriarchal order and lack of self-control in general. Our understanding of sexuality provides a different sort of under... We, if, we, if we understand this as an honor and shame situation, our understanding of sexuality is much different. Um, in Greco-Roman culture, there is no analog in some ways to our understanding of sexual orientation. And so I want to be cautious to not impose it upon the text. 
Some people are saying he talks about lust here and not a love relationship or a committed partnership between individuals either. So it may be talking about something else entirely. And then we get to this tricky part here where it says their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural in the same way also the men gave up natural intercourse with women and were consumed with passion for one another. What does natural mean here? It actually means customary or cultural. It doesn't mean created. It means as we understood it in the culture. It is not about who we are. Paul uses the term natural to describe customary or culture. Why? 1 Corinthians 11, for example, uses the same word to women covering their heads, which is a cultural thing, and none of the women here have their heads covered, right? Because we understand that as conforming to a custom, and we don't conform to that custom anymore. So it is not just what is natural, that we conform to as if natural for, means forever or created, you know, or ontological, you might say. This is customary. What is natural is a patriarchal hierarchy that orders men above women here, and any time that order is violated, the writers seem to have a problem with it. So natural sex is between a man and a woman because of a patriarchal ordering. And if we reject the patriarchal ordering in today's time and place, then a prohibition of sex between men and women also fails. If we reject the patriarchal order, a prohibition of sex between men or between women, LGBTQIA relationships also fails. It is hard to translate the idolatry and cultural prohibition to a modern understanding of LGBTQIA love, sex, and marriage, from my viewpoint. And once again, the sin is idolatry, worshiping another god, and the punishment is giving them away to their desires. They are not punished for those desires. That is the punishment. Does that make sense? So that's how, Roma, that's how I would approach Romans 1. I want to know what you think about that. This is probably a passage that's used most frequently. And that's how I understand it, and why I wouldn't conclude that you can't marry gay people because of that. Any questions or comments about that? Any experience with it? Anything you want to share? Okay, we'll have more time to talk back after this passage and then even more, okay? Let's go to the vice lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Someone allowed want to read these on Zoom or in the building. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male, prostit male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinless, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. These vice lists in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy are passages that are often used to condemn LGBTQIA people. There's some approaches that we can use to understand what's happening here. One scholar points out that these vice lists actually focus on a common sin in Corinth. What's the common sin in this list? Right in the middle, the greedy. What's that? Everybody. Everybody. Now why? Why greedy in Corinth? Frank, people at Frankfurt Ave should know this. Because Corinth has a major fault line in the community between the weak and the strong. They're mainly, there's like 150 Corinthians, probably, or less. You know, not a big church. And most of them are poor. And there's a wealthy elite in them called the strong. They're the ones who get drunk at the love feast, who eat all the food before. Yeah, don't get drunk at our love feast. That's one thing you can do, not do. Um, they eat all the food before the workers from the field come later in the day. And Paul says before he offers the words of institutions in 1 Corinthians 11, distribute your money better before you come to the Lord's table. Why would you make a mockery of those who have nothing? The greedy. Paul says all these things that are real bad, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and robbers. And he puts greedy in there because, oh, I'm talking about you. You're just like all these when you take from the poor, when you, when you mock them with your excess. So that's one idea about how this passage is working. And then in Timothy, Here's the common sin, liars. Once again, calling out, and I haven't done an extensive study of Timothy, but calling out that basic sin as the same as the rest. So it's not about LGBTQIA inclusion and affirmation. So, beyond that, these terms that are used to describe male prostitutes in, in, in Corinthians, you have male prostitutes here, and then you have sodomites here, and sodomites here. Those are the ones we draw on, those little two, two words there to conclude, to condemn LGBTQIA people. In Corinthians, for male prostitutes, malakoi, malakos is the word. Sodomites, sometimes translated as homosexuals. Mind you, that's not a term that was originated in English until the 19th century, for what it's worth, so I don't know why they're picking that word. They do so in the King James Version, famously. The word is arsenokoitais. It doesn't seem to be describing LGBTQIA folks and relationships as we know them. Malakoi or Malakos, male prostitutes here. You know what that literally means? It means a soft person. It means a passive person. Sometimes it's translated as effeminate. It can mean slave who is used by his master as a passive sexual partner. It can refer to a young boy being used as a sexual partner. It might mean a debauched individual 
in any case, it doesn't refer to what we understand as a consensual loving relationship between LGBTQIA people. Okay? Arsenokoitas, which is in both passages, Sodomites here, it literally just means, by the way, men who go to bed. That's what it means. And it is novel in Greek, the language of Greek, up until this point. We don't see it in any other text before this. It may have been coined by Paul, but Paul coining a term and not really explaining it to his audience seems unusual. So likely what happened is they took the Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and they found in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, those two words, Arseno and Koitos, and combined them into one so that his audience understood what he was talking about. Paul is using it here to describe sexual activity in general. It refers perhaps to an active partner in a sexual relationship. Maybe the older man who's having sex with young boys or a sexually rapacious individual or it might even refer to economic exploitation, once again a theme in Corinth, where some one is victimizing the poor person in sexual passion, like a slave or a young boy. And a better translation might be pederist here. Both of these words refer to relationships between men that Paul would have observed the most. Relationships between men that Paul would have observed the most. The master, the old man, the abusive sexual partner, and their victim of abuse. That's why Paul pairs them in Corinthians, because he's referring to the active and the passive partner. They just don't describe a free, loving, consensual relationship. Our current understanding of LGBTQIA folks and their relationships rooted in love, consent, mutuality, and dignity seems to be just really far away from what any of these passages are describing. Genesis 9, when Ham rapes Noah, Genesis 19, Judges 19, when rape again is the issue. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, where there's a cultic practice that's prohibited that may not fall under the sexual immorality in Acts 15, Romans 1, which seems to be referring to a different sort of sexual relationship, a customary, a, a violation of the customary order, the, the cultural order. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, in 1 Timothy 1, these words are given meaning from our culture and our understanding. And there's more there than that. So those are the those are the texts that are used to kind of that can be used to condemn LGBTQIA people and why I think that we shouldn't conclude that way. Do you have any questions about Corinthians or Timothy or the rest? Any more you want to say back? How do you think we should be talking about this in Circle of Hope further, or sharing what we know, or helping people along. What do you think? What do you want to say back? <laughs>